welcome to Meet the PAs podcast. Hear the experiences of seasoned PAs, up-and-coming development of policy from industry leaders, and the exploration of those new to the career. Interviews done with a Canadian twist at Maple Syrup. Welcome back to Meet the PAs podcast. I'm Becky. I'm here with Rachel and our guest today is Katrina Monti. She goes by Katie. She's a physician assistant in the U.S. military. Welcome, Katie. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So just to get started, give us a bit of a summary on you, uh, where you work, and a bit of background about yourself. Sure. So I'm a U.S. Army and I'm currently the group physician assistant for uh, First Special Forces Group out of Joint Base Lewis-McChord in Washington. Primarily, my role is uh, about 50% patient every morning, and I'm also the clinic OIC, meaning the officer in charge, and we primarily function as a group, all work together there in the clinic every morning. We have different units assigned to each of us, And we kind of cross cover. So we end up seeing everybody's patients right there in our clinic within the special forces group. And how many people do you typically see in a day? So every day is kind of different. And generally speaking, we probably see 10 patients per provider a day. So we we do a walk-in clinic. So we're not appointment-based. So basically the soldiers will show up in the morning and Uh, We check them all in. They might see their own primary care provider, or they might end up seeing a different uh, doctor or PA that's within the special forces group. A lot of times they come in with four or five or six different issues. And because we're a walk-in clinic and we have some extra time, we get to take care of all of those issues and then schedule another visit to come back in another three, four weeks down the road. Uh, to talk about their other issues. So I think that's a big return people to duty faster, which is important in our profession. Yeah, definitely. What are the common ailments that you tend to see? We feel like, I feel like this patient population group may have very different things that they present within the civilian sector. Absolutely. So we deal with a primarily young and healthy adult population So my civilian counterparts will will probably have much more experience dealing with sick patients. So our young and healthy population, they have a lot of uh, sports injuries or musculoskeletal injuries. As you can imagine, they do a lot of uh, vigorous physical training, carrying heavy loads. They do a lot of static line free fall, airborne operations. And then they also have blast exposures from IEDs or breaching a lot with the long-term effects of those aspects of the job. Okay. And what is your uh, typical day, like hours? Do you work a standard nine to five Monday through Friday? So typically our, we call it sit call. So when the patients show up at our our sit call starts at 8am, which works out really well for me and my family, because I'm able to get my daycare, drive them in, drop them off. And then my daycare is right across the street from the clinic where I work. So head over to the clinic there and we see patients probably till about 11.30, 11.45. And then after that, I get to the gym most days during lunchtime. So between 11.45, 12.45, and then 
from about 1 p.m. and on, it's kind of up for grabs what I'm doing. It kind of varies day to day. So I might go back to my second office, which is within my unit footprint, where I do administrative tasks, or I might go out somewhere to do data collection for one of the research studies I'm working on. Or I might be out training or observing training or working with the other battalion providers, planning uh, medic training. So it really just varies day to day what I'm doing in the afternoon. That sounds really fun. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> I tell people I have the best job in the Army. I love my job and it's, it definitely never gets boring. You mentioned research. Are you involved in that quite a bit? So I'm currently doing a research study. It's overseen by the University of Pittsburgh uh, Sports Medicine Concussion Center. And I'm the site principal investigator here within first group. And it's basically a concussion study. So it's on the VOM screening tool, which is the vestibular ocular motor screening tool. That's really cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a five-minute uh, screening exam of the vestibular and ocular systems for concussion. And prior to this screening tool, there's never been a screening tool that we've used that uh, evaluated these systems in terms of uh, assessing concussion defi- deficits from concussion. So basically, I have uh, people that I have to enroll for our, our healthy population uh, enrolled. And basically, it's to confirm that you know, this screening tool has already been validated on the civilian side with collegiate and professional. And how do you become the principal investigator on a project like this? Years ago, I, you know, had just been, I've been in this unit for about two and a half years. And about two years ago, I was the group support battalion PA. And our group surgeon basically said, hey, there's this research opportunity, be a principal investigator would anybody like to do it, to step up to do it? And I went home that day and my husband, who's also, he's a retired army PA, uh, research coordinator, research is just his, uh, his niche. And I've never done research. So I asked him, you know, do you think that I, this is something that I could do? And he said, well, the protocol's already written. Yeah, all the hard work's done. So <laughs> go right <laughs> And I'm, I definitely, you can definitely do this. So I went into work the next day and um, one of my colleagues, a physical therapist, uh, he and I both wanted to do it. So we kind of decided to tag team the project. And uh, so that's, that's I just kind of raised my hand <laughs> and volunteered. And that's how I got uh, involved with that. That's awesome. It's really very exciting. I think we need more PAs in research. So well done. <laughs> Definitely opened the door to a lot of different opportunities, um, meeting people from, uh, you know, I've, I've got to go to the Defense DivVic, which is the Defense Veterans Brain Injury Center. They had their annual training conference, their National Providers Training Conference in September last year, where they released the MACE-2. MACE-2 is our military acute concussion evaluation, our version two, which includes the VOM screening tool in it. It's embedded in it. And I got to go to this conference for this, you know, big distribution of this. Um, and after that, you know, just forming those relationships with other uh, experts in the with experts in the field of brain injury was just uh, pretty humbling. So. Yeah, that'd be a really neat experience. Yeah. We always like to ask people how they or why they chose the PA profession, mostly because 
there's not a ton of people in Canada like the States, but what made you choose the PA profession and to work within the military? Yeah. So I'll give you a little, my story, (laughs) my background story. So I initially enlisted and when I joined, it was more just to kind of get out of my town that I wanted to travel all around the world. And the army seemed like the best way to do that. I uh, didn't come from a lot of money. So about that time is when the recruiter reached out and contacted me. And uh, initially I kind of resisted it, but then I decided that, you know, I, I asked, well, can I get stationed? Absolutely. So they put it in my contract. And when I initially joined, I came in as a generator, generator mechanic. So, and I didn't realize it at the time, what I, what my job was, um, the actual (laughs) was power generation equipment repair specialist. So I was under the impression that I was some kind of specialist or some kind of technician. And, uh, and my drill sergeant asked me, you know, Hey soldier, what's your, what's your MOS? What's your job going to be? And I said, I'm a power generation equipment repair specialist drill sergeant. And he said, Oh, you're a generator mechanic. And I said, a technician. I'm a specialist. He's like, you're a generator mechanic. <sighs> and that was not what I had envisioned being a mechanic. But um, I went to the training and I did that for four years. And it's actually a really great skill to have. Um, not many people in the medical field are mechanically inclined. So this skill really comes, comes very helpful when we're deployed to an austere environment where there's we use generators <laughs> and there's not always a generator or vehicle mechanic around when the generator goes down or your truck breaks down. Um, so it has proven over and over to be a useful skill to have. But after about four years of that, I decided through a mechanic of the army, there's not much potential for promotion beyond uh, sergeant first class. So I didn't really see a future in that job. So at the time I asked around to my other friends that were in the army with me you know, hey, like, you know, tell me about your job. What do you like about it? And the only friends that said they loved their jobs were the medics. So let me try that out. So I reclassed and I became a medic. And as soon as I graduated AIT, which is our advanced individual training for our job, um, well, during AIT, I should say, this was in uh, 2003, early 2003, I uh, was walking to formation and everybody stopped me and said, you got to go look. The 173rd is jumping into Iraq. So the 173rd Airborne Brigade Combat Team, this was March 26, 2003, was uh, jumping into Iraq. So I, they had the TV and I was watching CNN, watching these paratroopers jumping out of an airplane and in the middle of the night. And I thought, I want to do that. <laughs> I need to be <laughs> in that unit and, um, and, and, and I need to go to Iraq. And I felt a very strong, I felt very strongly I needed to be there. So I told my drill sergeant in AIT, you know, I, I need to go to airborne school. I need to get stationed in Italy. I need to go to the 173rd. And they tried and they tried. And I came down on orders for Giebelstadt, Germany. I had to, I had to out process. I had to clear. I had to go to Germany. So I got to Germany and uh, it was a human resources clerk, a specialist that was at the desk. And I said, look, I need to go to the 173rd. So he put my orders on hold. And during this time, because my drill sergeant had been working to to help me get the job that I wanted, everything just kind of fell into place over this long four-day weekend. By Tuesday, I showed up and I had orders for the 173rd. So I got down to the 173rd and I said, I need to deploy. I need to go to Iraq. Everybody's there. 
And they said, you need to go to airborne school. <laughs> and I said, no, I need to go. I need to go to Iraq. And they said, don't worry. When you get back, they'll still be there. So I went to airborne school and they just didn't want me to show up. We call it being a leg. So a leg is, is not a paratrooper and you don't want to be a leg in an airborne unit. So I went to airborne school and I met my unit in Iraq. So brand new medic in Iraq, OAF one. And this is, you know, which is probably the best place to be for a brand new medic because all the trauma came through us, right? So I got a lot of exposure to combat trauma and it was just a fantastic unit. And I felt very honored to be taking care of these soldiers. And I just, I really loved it. And I had some amazing PAs and doctors that were mentoring me. I did a subsequent deployment to Afghanistan with the 173rd as a medic. And again, you know, PAs, doctors pushing me, you can do more, you can do more. And I just kind of looked at them thinking they're, they're so smart and I could never be that, you know. I had very you know, limited college under my belt. I was basically doing one class at a time to try to work towards some kind of degree. And you know, having these people tell me you, you should do more and I wanted to do more. I felt very limited as a medic with what I could provide to these injured soldiers that were coming in for help. And one day kind of what sealed the deal was I was a staff sergeant at the time, a, a newly promoted staff sergeant, which is a, a non-commissioned officer. And we had a mass casualty situation, which were fairly common. So we probably had about 12 uh, casualties come in that day. And since I was the person in charge of, you know, organizing this, you know, mass casualty response team, I, my job was not patient care, but, you know, being a leader and organizing and telling people where to go and what to do. And when I felt that everything was set into place, I jumped in on the table and started working on a patient. Well, one of my senior leaders was in our, our, our operating cell, basically, he stepped out and called me over and basically was chewing me out for working on a patient when there was an emergency blood drive going on in the front of our clinic that I had no clue about. And I knew that he was right, that my role was no longer hands-on patient care. My role was, take, was, was organizing and supervising. And that was the moment when I realized this is not what I want to do anymore. So I felt like I reached the capacity of what I wanted for as a medic and dropped my PA packet and went to PA school. Um, yeah. So that's how, kind of how I chose the PA profession. That's a really chilling story. I'll be honest. It gives me yeah. chills. That's quite, uh, I, I mean, I can't personally even fathom dealing with mass casualties like that. Yep. No. We, we definitely got a lot of practice. You know, in Iraq, we were a, this is OIF-1. At the time, we were the only platoon-sized element, role two. So, you know, you have your role one, which is your battalion aid station, which is usually a PA and a handful of medics, if you're lucky. And then you have a role two, which is more robust. You usually have multiple PAs, a doctor, a pl probably about 10 to 15 or more medics that are with you. You have like evacuation capability. You have a patient hold area, which is usually about just 72 hours or so that you can hold on to a patient. 
And we were the only platoon size element in the army that was a role too. Everywhere else, it's usually a company size element, which is, you know, 150 plus people. Um, so we got tons of experience as, a med as medics um, taking care of trauma. And then going to Afghanistan initially as a medic, I was pushed forward to a forward operating base where it was me, a PA, and, and about three medics. And we were co-located with half of a Ford surgical team. And this was in Aruzgan province in 05 to 06. And we were the only surgical capability within the entire province. So again, all trauma came through us. And it was there were there were so as a medic, you know, you have paramedics that are not paramedic EMTs stateside that get some training. And as a medic, you also get EMT certified as EMT basic. But when you're a medic deployed to board, you can basically do anything that you've been trained to do, whether it's a chest tube or innovation, which of course as an EMT basic, you definitely cannot do as a civilian. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's just really amazing, impressive. That Thank you for all that work. How long actually were you in Iraq and Afghanistan? So combined, so my first Iraq deployment was about six months and my deployment was a year. And then I went back to Iraq as a PA for another year after I graduated from PA school. Wow. How was your experience different as a medic versus a PA? So uh, as a PA, when I deployed back to Iraq, so now my first deployment in Iraq was 03 to 04. My second deployment to Iraq was 2010 to 2011. So the theater of operations had completely changed by that point. Mm, yeah. yeah. So 03 to 04, we were living in tents. We were so happy when the Air Force showed up finally because we actually got air conditioner units, <laughs> which was amazing. Wow, it's hot there. Yeah, yeah it's really hot there. <laughs> we were we eventually got a trailer, which was awesome because before we were using, uh, we were basically creating showers out of like five gallon water cans and things like that. Um, so, but or or not even ten years later, it was definitely a more mature theater. Uh, we lived in what we call twos, which I think stand for container housing units. So basically, it's like a a, a, a connex or a, a shipping, like a shipping container. Like a portable. Yeah. And you, but you live in there <laughs> and, um, but it, it was really nice compared to the, the tents we had before. So I couldn't complain. Um, we had a really nice, we had a dining facility and that being said, not every fob had all these nice things, but where I was located during second deployment to Iraq uh, was definitely more well-established. And so that was a huge difference. And then we did, during my second Iraq deployment. And I was also with a Charlie Med. So Charlie Med is a role two element. And I had uh, lots of medics uh, that I got to train. And my that was very satisfying for me because they went from hardly knowing anything because they didn't get a ton of training supporting everybody else, you know, medical coverage for ranges or whatever else was going on, that they medical training leading up to the deployment. So when I got there, um, which was right before we deployed and we got downrange, uh, I basically implemented a training program that feeling confident about themselves to feeling like they were like th just 
experts at what they were doing and they were, and we worked really well. To, so that was definitely fun for me to, to do that training with them. I bet. I just amazing. It's just amazing. How would and and to just to take a step back to the schooling piece of PA school because you had mentioned that when you decided to do that you didn't have much uh, college or university under your belt. So, uh, how long did it actually take you to get through all of that schooling? Ten years. <laughs> wow. I mean, dedication really because you continued to work full time as well. Yeah. So while I was an enlisted soldier in Germany and then Italy. So I was in Europe for a total of about eight years. Um, and that's including the overseas deployments. And I basically just took one, maybe two classes at a time. I started out with the really easy stuff like film, art. <laughs> and <laughs> I was not a school or academic type of person um, to kind of get my feet wet and found that I actually enjoyed going to, to college classes. Our college classes overseas so every Tuesday and Thursday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., I would be in school. So after I got off work, I would I would go to school twice twice a week. And after I did a few of those easy classes, I started taking English and all of that. I tried to do a, a math class, but I took the placement test and I answered like seven out of 20 questions. And um, not even correctly, just that's what I answered. And then I gave up. I was like, I can't. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> Yeah. So my first college math class was not until what when I did the requirements completion. Complete all the requirements for PA school overseas. So I was missing anatomy and physiology, two of my chemistry requirements, and college algebra. Um, at the time, the Army really needed PAs. So they created what's called the requirements completion course, or the RCC. So each year, and this only went on for a few years, but each year, um, and this was and I was the inaugural class, 30 people. And mm-hmm. basically we all moved to San Antonio to Fort Sam Houston. And for six months, we went to school. So we went to San Antonio Community College together, all 30 of us. <laughs> in mm-hmm. Chemistry, algebra. I ended up getting one of my friends to tutor me through chemistry and algebra. I definitely struggled with, with the math and everything but still managed to get A's by the end. Um, Thank goodness for my tutor. But we basically, we had to have a B average or better in order to go on to start PA school the following year. And the the, the college instructors loved us because we placed education as our number one priority where I guess in a lot of community colleges, you know, students will, um, they're focused more on, you know, their jobs or earning money, or they've got other issues going on. And, you know, they try to kind of just skate by. And I said, well, the, the fact of it, the matter is, you know, this was in 07. If we don't get a B average or higher, like we're going back to Afghanistan. Like that's, that that's our incentive to do well. Mm, and um, right. yeah. if we're not going to go to PA, we all finished and we started PA school in uh, January of 08. And our PA program, um, started, they started a, three classes a year at the time. We had about 75 people in my class. And basically the first year is just academics. So you're in school from 7.30 to 4.30 p.m. every day uh, with the same people every day. And mm-hmm. the second year, everybody kind of splits up and we all go off to our Army Medical Centers 
places, Air Force posts even have uh, opportunities for the phase two, right, the clinical rotations. Um, I did my phase two at Tripler Army Medical Center in Hawaii. <laughs> they don't feel too bad. Nice. Today. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and and that was amazing. We I because in Hawaii, uh, people from like uh, Gilbert Islands. Uh, I can't remember all the islands that are Marshall Island. So a lot of places that we've done testing, that the Army's done testing on in the past that we're kind of responsible for now. You know, so you see a lot of really strange, you know, tumors, cancers, um, muscular, like just really strange skin conditions. Um, it's the, the Tripler Army Medical Center is co-located with a VA center as well. So you see the older population as well. You see a homeless population. Uh, when all the other hospitals on the island are in are over, uh, what's the word like over capacity, they will routinely divert uh, civilian patients over to Tripler. So you see a ton of of illnesses and diseases there. So it was really a great experience for me for my phase two assignment. It sounds it's really incredible. I'm I'm also just I'm also kind of stuck on the fact that you of how hard you work to overcome your challenges. I mean, getting into PA school is really rigorous, whether it's in the military or civilian sector. It's very rigorous, and you overcame that. I mean, even going through a long period of study time, ten years or years to get into PA school is a very long time. How did you keep your motivation up? Um, so. Well, I think that the hardest part initially was just learning how to study. Um, that was definitely hard for me. But once I understood how I learned best, after that, I mean, the motivation really just came from in medicine that just fascinated me. So I, I truly love my job. I love working in medicine. I love learning. And in fact, now I've been a PA for almost 10 years now. And the more that I learn now, the more I realize I didn't know, which is a little scary. Uh, we have yeah. that same issue. We have the same realization. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you learn something new and you think back, oh my gosh, what about this one patient I saw five years ago? You know, and <laughs> yeah, but luckily I, I also have a, a very intelligent PA for a husband who's been a PA much longer than I have. And um, so it's great to be able to bounce uh, ideas off of him. You know, if I, I see a complicated patient or something that I'm not too sure about, you know, he, he's a phone call away or, you know, just kind of run it by him later just to kind of, you know, see like, did I miss anything? You know, um, so he's a great resource. Uh, how, how is it now that you have little ones at home? Because I think about, how challenging it must be in the military to not know if and when you will be deployed somewhere and for how long like that. Like I feel anxiety thinking about that for you and your, and your family. How do you manage that? And what are the, the rules and regulations around deployment? Okay. Yeah. So every, so if you're dual military, which I was dual military before my husband retired, you have to have what's called a, a or if you're a single parent, you have to have a family care plan meaning a short-term care plan, meaning if you have to go to the range one day and you say through the night, what's your plan to take care of your child? And a long-term one, meaning if you have to deploy in the next 72 hours, where are you gonna either send your kids or who are you gonna fly in? How are you gonna do that? Um, if you're not dual military, so meaning only one spouse is in the military, you don't have to have a family care plan. Um, that being said, my husband also works full-time as a clinical, uh, as a research coordinator. 
so he also travels uh, fairly frequently. So for instance, this month I was gone for a week. I came back. My husband left for a week. He came back. Um, so we rely a lot on my mother-in-law. <laughs> so mm. yeah, she, uh, ever since we had our kids, our first kid in 2014, um, she, if it weren't for my mother-in-law, we definitely could not do this job for sure. And it does take a whole family to, you know, if you have a family, it, it definitely takes a support system, a strong support system in order to be able to. So, and as far as deployment goes, you know, if, if you find out you have to deploy, generally you, you get enough advance warning to be able to have some kind of support system in place for your family. Um, it's, it's not super common that you find out all of a sudden, at least in my experience, others might have some different experiences out there. Um, but having that support system in place is, is crucial and having, you know, turning in place, all, all of that. How often do you have, do you personally travel? So I probably only travel a year and that can be anywhere from about a week to two months at a time. That's probably been over the last four or five years or so. Um, I was in 11. I was uh, scheduled to deploy again in 2012, but then it got canceled. And that's when I decided that I wanted to get married and start a family. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. So, but if I, if I had to deploy, particularly in this unit, the deployment would only be about six months or so. Um, right now there's no plans for me personally to deploy, but of course that's always, uh, that's always kind of on the table that you have to kind of be prepared for. Right. So like the one week to a few weeks in length per year is not so bad, seems manageable. And it's the longer term ones that seem a bit more daunting, but you haven't even done it. That's not done as regularly. I have, I haven't done it since I've had children. Thank it. Yeah. yeah. Um, right. Yeah. If so, but if that were to happen, you know, a six month deployment, for instance, or a nine month deployment, um, my I don't, I don't even know what I would do right now. It would definitely be a conversation my husband and I would have to have about how we would work that out, whether he's taking care of the kids and working his job on his own or maybe flying in my mother-in-law here and there. Um, but we would figure it out. Like that, that's the thing. Right. Right. It out. <laughs> it, it's doable. It's manageable. Despite the anxiety I have even thinking about it <laughs> <laughs> for you, it's you're, you work through it. You still love your job. You're still there for your kids right. and your family's work. Absolutely. And, and the kids now at this point, you know, we've only had to leave for, you know, weeks to months to a couple months at a time. The kids at this point are now, you know, okay, mommy's going on trip. Okay. Are you bringing us toys back? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah. the critical important thing, yeah. how many toys do they get back? Yeah. <laughs> what did you bring me? Resilient yeah. at this point. Um, it's hard for them, of course. I mean, good point. I mean, for sure. That's something super valid. Kids are more resilient than we probably give them credit mm -hmm. for. Especially if they're being raised in an environment with other military families, right? Like they would, they're know, familiar with it. They're they familiar with it. it. Yeah. They're not the only kids whose parents go away. Right. And even outside of the military, there's lots of people who travel. My husband travels quite frequently, around 50% of the time. So, I mean, even even outside the military, there's yeah. a lot of travel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, fair point. Um, I did want to ask you, as a person, I, this is just a really a kind of a personal question, because I have considered 
joining the military in the past, it seems like there are really a lot of benefits to being a PA in the military. Um, not only the pay and benefits that come with it, but also the autonomy level, the structure that's there tends to, in my view, often work in our favor. But I have also considered the opposite things of that. Like, well, how would I feel working as a female in a male-dominated environment? And I'm not confident of that. Have you had any issues with that or has it been a fairly smooth ride? So I would say, so I actually reflected on this over the last month or so. I've never felt uh, at the time that I've ever been discriminated throughout my career. However, reflecting over this question over the last month or so, I looked back and realized that there was a time, and I'll share this story with you because it's kind of funny. Uh, this was back when I was a generator, generator mechanic. So being a mechanic, I was the only woman in my section. Um, I was probably about mm. at the time. And... I was cross-trained as a fuel handler. So my assigned vehicle was this 10-ton Hemet fuel truck. And because it was my assigned vehicle, to perform all the preventive maintenance checks and services on it, usually if it's your assigned vehicle, you're also the driver. Well, my NCOs, my my leadership, would not let me be the driver of this 10-ton and Instead, they put this other NCO as the driver. Well, this other NCO, he 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 hit a bus stop sign. He hit a two candy stripe barriers. Oh, These are driving oh, no. villages of, of Germany, right? Um, which are small rooms. He got stuck in the mud. He had to get the record out. He hit a tree. And the, oh, no. <laughs> the, the final culmination of all of this was when he hit a light post outside of a military police station, an MP station. Oh, God. And they had told us, whatever you do, don't hit the light post when you back up. Oh, was, oh, my goodness. Yeah, so I was ground guiding him. And now, granted, we were both sleep deprived because we had been in the field all week. But I'm ground guiding him. And he was not, you know, acknowledging my arms telling him which way to back up and he hit the light post. So this resulted in a subsequent investigation. At the time, I think I was a private first class maybe, or maybe a specialist. I wasn't paid a lot of money at the time. And the investigator basically said, well, we can do a formal investigation or you guys can just split the cost of the light pole, which is $2,000. And I said, I don't have to do that to, to just pay you. And I said, it wasn't my fault. He wasn't paying attention to how it's ground getting him. And so they did the investigation. Of course, they found no one was at fault. It was an accident. And after that, I was determined. I was like, I can't, I can't have him driving me around in this truck anymore. <laughs> it's not so safe. Because my NCOs refused to let me be the driver of the truck, I went to our battalion maintenance officer, who is a chief warrant officer. And I basically told, so the chief warrant officers in the army are like the the technicians of um, certain fields. So like in the mechanic, they are like the, the gurus in the unit. So I went to our battalion maintenance officer and I said, you know, look, I, I can't drive around in this truck anymore with him hitting everything and getting into accidents on this truck. So he took me out and we did a road test and I passed every, every task he told me to do. And he gave me a license and I went back to my leadership and I said, here's my license. It's my truck now and I'm driving it. And there was no question about it. They let me do it. And I love, you know, kidding. It was the best truck to drive out of all of the trucks we had. And 
<laughs> it was fun. But looking <laughs> at the time, I never, it never once crossed my mind that this was, but that being said, now that I'm older and, you know, I guess wiser, <laughs> I look back and I realize it totally was gender discrimination because no other mechanic, which they were, the rest were all men, were ever denied the ability to get licensed on a vehicle in that motor pool. Mm-hmm. And, but I'm glad I not recognize this as discrimination. I just recognized it as a problem that I needed to overcome. And I did. It sounds like you did it in a really good fashion yes. too. <laughs> so well done. <laughs> but I can definitely see the army has changed a lot in regards to women. Um, I'm a big believer that, you know, any, you know, as in the words of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, a woman, sh- wherever decisions are being made, that's where a woman should be. And, yeah, I like yes. <laughs> and I think that we've come a long way with women being in the military. I mean, obviously you still see, you know, trolls on social media saying, you know, well, you know, how can a woman pass ranger school or how can she do that? You know, the, you know, what if she gets her period in the, in the field and the bear, and it's, oh God. it's always the bear's <laughs> argument, right? And, yeah, how many fields are you going into overseas that are overrun with bears? Right. Really? Like, <laughs> you never have a problem, um, but that's just me. But yeah, you know, those bears are really what's, but that yeah. being said. And heaven forbid you, you know, scratch your leg on a branch <laughs> while you're being chased by the bear and you're bleeding. Like, <laughs> it's such a ridiculous argument. And I can say um, currently in, in the army, we've, we've come a long way and coming over to a special forces unit, especially when I was first offered the job, that was my concern. Am I going to be the only one? I, I, what I was getting myself into. So I have a lot of questions and um, they had just started uh, putting women into the special forces units within the last, I think, year or so before I got there. And when I showed up as the group support battalion PA and uh, one of my first patients was a woman, she was there for her pap. She was like, we have a female PA. I'm so excited and (laughs) relieved to see me. And I probably do about 90% of the pelvic exams in first group. I bet you do. (laughs) Because it's not like, you know, the, the other providers, they, they are appreciative of it and they pick up the other patients that are sitting out there in the waiting room. So it's all fair. Uh, and they're also not afraid. The other male providers are not afraid to choose like contraceptives or amenorrhea or pregnancy or whatever. They're, they're all pretty, they're all great. They're all great providers. Um, but I, I don't mind doing the pelvic exam. <laughs> it's not what it takes to keep me in this unit. Then, <laughs> then so be it. <laughs> Right. Well, and how nice for the women to also have that option, right? Because um, it, civilian sector, it's it used that used to be an issue. You know, fifty years ago, you couldn't find a, a female uh, OB gynae or any kind of practitioner to do it. Now it's not a problem, and so I'm really glad to hear it's becoming easier in the military too. Yeah. <laughs> how nice for them. Let's see what other questions do you have, Rach. I don't know. I feel like I could. I feel like I could talk to you for hours. Yep. I feel like you're you have a lot of really good stories and insights to share. What but, else can you add to us right now, or do do you have any? Oh, I was just saying. Would you recommend for people who want to go either be a PA, uh, and, but they're not sure how to do it? Would you recommend that they do it through the military? So I'm of course biased. <laughs> um, I, again, I, I love my job. I tell people or team. 
army. But I think the reason is because it's, I became a PA because I want to take care of patients and I love training medics. That's the bottom line. And as long as you stay focused, as long as I stay focused on those two priorities, then everything else falls into place because it's easy to get caught up in the mundane administrative tasks or things that get pushed on you just because, you know, people know you're the one that can do it. Um, But if you keep your focus of, you know, training medics, taking care of patients, it continues to be a satisfying job, a satisfying career. So I think the army is a great place for people to figure out what it is they want to be when they grow up. And the army has tons of opportunity. The PA program in the army. So it's the inner service physician assistant program, which includes all branches of service. Um, It's basically, I went to school full-time while also getting paid to work full-time. And I don't know how other people do it. It was hard. It was a challenging program. And by the end of it, I got a a bachelor's degree and my master's degree out of it, all paid for by the military. I owe not one single dime. Yeah, most of us cannot say that. That's that's such an attractive thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's, you can't beat this program. It's one of the best programs I believe the, the military has to offer. People can come into the army as direct commissions. So you do your PA training um, as, a, as a direct commission. So you come in as a PA right off the street. And sometimes the army will do loan repayment programs to help pay off that debt. Uh, but if, you, if anyone out there is interested to learn more, there's a website, goarmy.com. And they can kind of read more about what a PA does in the military and uh, how to reach out to a recruiter. Awesome. Yeah, I think I think it's fantastic. I'm really fascinated by your story. Uh, are you okay if people have questions, if they reach out to you personally? Yeah, sure, absolutely. And uh, Is there anything else that you would like us to add? Um, <laughs> yeah, I just... I know it's hard to think. Yeah. I know it's hard to think, right? <laughs> yeah, I I just really, um, you know, after you both reached out to me asking to do this podcast, you know, I, I thought about it for a couple of months and, um, you know, I listened to your podcast and I wanted to make sure it was uh, something I wanted to be a part of. And I think it's <laughs> fair. <laughs> totally fair. Um, I think it's fascinating. I think it's great that you guys are sharing every other PA stories and how they came into their jobs and, you know, what, how, how each, each of our jobs are different, because that's also one thing that was appealing to me about being a PA was how versatile we are. Uh, we can work. I heard, listen to the podcast of the PA working in neurosurgery. Yep. You have PAs working in research, you have PAs working with kids, you have PAs, you know, working in orthopedics. And, you know, one, one thing is if you, if you get to something different you know it's not like a doctor where you've gone and to school for eight to 12 years and you get to the end of your training and realize you know I I don't love this yeah and being a PA also gives you the opportunity to figure out what aspect of medicine you do love yeah yeah we would reiterate that and echo that sentiment entirely we think this is the most fabulous profession to choose on the planet so we are thought of doing like a five-year residency and realizing that you actually hate you know, surgery, surgery <laughs> like, or, or, or whatever it is. Yeah. And then have to go back and do another residency right. for another, you know, two to seven years. Seems torturous. Yep. Really Seems torturous. Awful. Yeah. 
Well, Katie, we thank you so much for being on here. Your story is absolutely fascinating. It's really riveting. And I think many of our listeners will find a lot of uh, intrigue and interest listening to you. And thank you so much for being here with us. Yes, thank you again. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you for having me. Yes, everybody else, please remember to like, subscribe, and comment. Uh, find us at mtppodcast.ca or on your favorite podcast app. Meet the PA's podcast is sponsored by pahelpers.ca, where you can find all your Canadian exam prep needs. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit us at mtppodcast.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and we would love your feedback.